Space. The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of Death by DVD. Their mission lasting 12 years so far to explore cult, exploitation, bizarre, lost, weird, unusual movies and everything in between from horror to strange new worlds. To seek out life and new audiences. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now, from the deck of the Enterprise, Hank, the world's greatest, with I, Alexander Nash. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. Welcome back to Star Trek week or maybe month. We don't know how long this is going to go on. We, we really don't. On the last episode, we explored Star Trek, the motion picture. Look at, I, I say it wrong. On the last episode, we explored it, explored it. On the last, ec- on the last episode, we explored Star Trek, the motion picture, 1979. And the only logical thing to do is move forward to Star Trek II. Wrath of Khan, this is where we're at in Death by DVD history. We're reviewing every Star Trek movie. The first ones, the only, the first six. So, Star Trek 2, it's Wrath of Khan, most people know what this one is, where it's Kirk coming up against his old adversary, the fascistic clone, clone, uh, more of a, a hybrid human being known as Khan, that during the original series he left on a, uh, on a like marooned on a planet that was kind of empty and desolate. Well, and... I brought this up on the last episode, but unfortunately, the Star Trek motion series does have a little bit of need to have previous knowledge of Star Trek itself, and this is really where that comes into play. And we brought this up and we're discussing it when we began this entire ordeal. I'm a newbie. I've come into this completely cold. I don't know anything about the series. So when I was introduced to this character, I actually think I texted you, well, I feel bad for this guy. I mean, he seems like he really got the shit end of the stick and that, that Starfleet kind of fucked him over. And you explained to me, oh, no. No, Khan's a dick. <laughs> they're hybrid beings because they're they're like genetically engineered beings. And basically Khan decided that we're superior to humanity in all ways. And this is all hundreds of years before even you know Kirk was alive in the Starship Enterprise, and they got shot into space, frozen, and hypersleep. It happens in 1996. And uh, they're floating around space, and on the original series, Kirk picks them up, tries to save them, but it turns out uh, they defrosted space Hitler. And uh, then, you know there's a battle ensues, and he leaves him on this, this planet by himself. And they kind of explain that Kirk... Um, they don't explain all of who Khan is, but... You know he's a bad guy. You know Kirk fucked him over in the past, that's and that's really what's important. thing about the explanations to the characters when it comes to Wrath of Khan is what we do explore is, is Chekhov, who has become a commander on another ship, and the captain finding Khan. And they don't acknowledge or remember what had happened, which makes sense because Chekhov wasn't a character or part of the Enterprise at the time period when Khan's episode arc happened on the original series. I've come to find out 
Maybe I've been reading Wikipedia in between recording these episodes. So this incident happens, and it's the utmost anger coming from Khan. We don't really get the backstory of how evil he was, and it's particularly the word evil that we need to use in this situation because it wasn't like he was a misunderstood genius. He's no Alexander the Great. The guy was 100% evil and was trying to destroy what becomes the antithesis of the Star Trek series, and that is the overall acceptance of absolutely everybody and the equality of absolutely everybody in a perfect world that obviously we can't live in and doesn't exist right now. So Khan is the absolute difference of everything that Star Trek stands for. He is 100% He's he's almost like Mirror Kirk. He's the dark mirror of Kirk. I mean, they have a similar bravado behind their characters, and he's the antithesis of Kirk, the the other side of the coin. And that's always what's made him such a powerful adversary to Kirk, is because Kirk can kind of see himself in in him, and Khan can see himself in the reverse. Um, And what's kind of really interesting about how we start this film is we start with a training exercise on unwinnable situations, and it's the Kobayashi Maru, which we find out... I thought that was a type of steak. It is not... Captain, I'm getting something on the distress channel. On speakers. This is the Kobayashi Maru. 19 periods out of Altair 6. We have struck a gravitic mine and have lost all power. Our harness penetrated and we have sustained many casualties. This is the Starship Enterprise. Your message is breaking up. Can you give us your coordinates? Repeat, this is the Starship... It's, it's a training exercise they put captains through that the only one captain who's ever passed this test and did not get a fail on it was Captain Kirk. But we don't understand why for quite some time. He cheated. He reprogrammed the computer to make it a winnable situation because it, the, the program is designed to not win so that the captain has to accept defeat. And Kirk pretty bluntly explains, I will not accept defeat. I will find a way out of it. And that really informs his character, and again, the humbling of Kirk in this film as well, that sometimes you absolutely have to accept defeat. He cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. Got a commendation for original thinking. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Faced death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Well, that returns us to something that you were discussing and I think is a very arc point and important thing when it comes to the first core four movies of the six that we're going to be discussing is the arcs of all of the characters, the major three characters, Dr. McCoy, Captain Kirk, Admiral Kirk in some situations, and Captain Spock. The difference between all of these people and all of them coming together is what ends up being the most fluent and translating thing when you're watching this series as a newcomer and you've never seen it before. But all of this begins in the very first movie. Kirk has already been humbled by this point to where he is introduced in this movie almost as an insignificant character. You've got Captain Spock and he is a training captain. All of the things that we find out are happening are done in moments of absolute weakness. Everyone is tricked into the situations. We don't know how Kirk won or figured out the Kobayashi Maru. When we're introduced to Kirstie Alley's Savick, she's attempting to win it herself, and it becomes this constant theme throughout the movie. When it's finally given to us, we've we've almost been lamenting the entire time, well, how could Kirk figure this out? How is he the one person that could figure this scenario out? And it's lo and behold because he cheated. 
The perfection behind that returns us to the development of these characters, the logic of Spock, Spock refusing to accept his human nature and the emotions behind that, McCoy, who is all too emotional, uh, to a fault, that for the most part, if he was allowed to be a captain, he would be an absolute terrible one, because he would just be about... Uh, like pi- I wouldn't. I don't want to say piracy, but something of the sort of a pirate captain. Let's take over new lands, and it has to be ours, and we have to have our belief. And then you've got the immaculacy of Kirk, not afraid to die, not afraid to go to bold new worlds. These three things coming together in the situation of what we're given, and the return of the villain we don't know. Because all of this, and where I'm ranting and it gets to, is the idea of this movie begins under the pretense of worry and woe. You've got Kirk willing to go out of his way to save a situation, but they don't exactly know what the situation is. And thus, we enter the idea of Genesis. And this is probably the most fantastical and... Phantasmagoric? Phantasmagoric, fantastical, strange. This is a concept that's introduced and not touched upon enough in the Star Trek universe that I think, to me, is the closest thing to God, aside from entities well, like Vigor. doesn't Major. work is the problem. Well, does God either? Yeah, but God doesn't have such an accelerated uh, life and death cycle as the Genesis Project because basically what we find out is the person who developed it is a scientist that Kirk used to, well, bang. Security scan approved. Summary, please. Project Genesis, a proposal to the Federation. Carol Marcus. Yes. What exactly is Genesis? Well, put simply... Genesis is life from lifelessness. It is a process whereby molecular structure is reorganized at the subatomic level into life-generating matter of equal mass. She happens to have a son. That's Kirk's son, actually, that he's never met before. And Kirk's son used a unreliable, unsustainable energy source for the gen well this is i mean it gets more into the third one but still it's but at this point in time with wrath of khan we have so much hope because we don't know that i mean as an overall yes we know it in the series but that is that's more of a human thing that comes crushing into the fault of the characters in part three with what we have in wrath of khan is the perfection of this idea genesis and then we reintroduce the character khan who when he was left in Star Trek, he was left on a beautiful utopia where life could be led and everything would be okay. We learned at the beginning of this movie that a planet nearby exploded, rendering the one that Khan and his people were left on to a desolate, horrible wasteland, just like Mad Max. It's just an awful place to live, and they're very, very angry about it. They learn the idea of Genesis, and we don't know as an audience that there are faults or instabilities with Genesis, and that's what makes the terror of this movie. We had something that was ultimately almost undefeatable in the last movie. The one thing that made V'ger a, a non-threat was the composition of human emotion. In this story, human emotion is entirely what the problem is, because it doesn't matter 100% Khan wants revenge, and he wants to be a king again. He lets us know that when he ruled Earth, when his fascist empire was happening, he was a prince and everything was absolutely perfect. He was happy and content. He wants that back, so we don't know what the faults of Genesis are. It's the power that Genesis holds behind somebody as evil and as corrupt as 
Khan. That's the fear. Well, Khan wants to use it as a weapon because it can also be the most powerful weapon because it will destroy whatever is on the world that you're trying to terraform with it. So it'll bring new life out of death. And I'm sure that Khan is trying to take Earth and turn it into a whole new world in his making where he does become God. Oh, and that's the terror behind him being a fascist. But again, that's the entire point and what's terrifying about aliens or alien or the whole entire universe itself is that the xenomorph is being used as a weapon, a terraforming weapon. It's dropped onto a planet, destroys absolutely everything. That essentially is what Genesis can be used for. But at the same time, it can be used for the what we know in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, is it can be used for absolute beauty. It can be used to feed the poor. It can be used to change the face of the world as we know it. We can go back to old planets that have been destroyed, like let's say Earth, through carbon monoxide and the big boom of technology to where our atmosphere is completely waste and null. We can fix it. We can make things beautiful again. That's the antithesis and why Genesis is such an important thing and why it's being protected so deeply. And this is where the ploy of emotion and the issues with one person thinking of themselves comes into play here because everyone gets fucked because of Captain Kirk. It's the one thing known inside of each person's memory. When Walter Koenig, when Chekhov is taken after his meeting with Khan... They put this thing in his ear, this eel that can control and warp who they are, and because of this, he's able to send a message to the people that are running Genesis that Starfleet, under the guise of Admiral Kirk, wants to come and take all of this technology, instantly setting off an emotional battle with inside of Captain Kirk, and as we learned in the first film, he is the hero, he is sharp, but he definitely has emotional problems that he can easily be warped with so he wants to go out and fix the situation and we don't all of the things that we've even introduced all of these plots all of these things this is what makes star trek 2 wrath of khan an articulate movie and i dare say a better production than the first movie we don't know that bb besh her character carol is kirk's former lover we don't know Merritt buttrick's david is kirk's son and his emotion coming out to try and save them over the genesis product is completely unknown all we know is the previously established nature of Khan being a totally ruthless, maniacal killer. That was a lot, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think there's a lot of details, and the, what I really connect to in the story is Kirk's story of being, at the beginning, being tipped off that he does not like unwinnable situations in any way possible. He will find a way out. He has to lie, cheat, and steal to do that. And Kirk does have to be humbled in this film once again because as many times as he like pulls one over on Khan, as many times as he fools Khan and ultimately defeats him, there's a price to pay for his bravado. And that price is his best friend because basically Spock has to sacrifice his life at the end to um, to protect the U.S. Enterprise from a radiation uh, explosion it doesn't really matter what's going on, but only Spock can stop it, and he gets radiation poisoning and dies. Well, what matters about the situation is how the situation is brought onward, because it's the last moment of almost uh, egotistical valiance coming from somebody like Khan. And uh, we've been bringing up that he's kind of like Space Hitler, even though the situation with Khan happened on Earth. What happened to Adolf Hitler? He wouldn't accept defeat, so he had his wife murdered or shot her and then shot himself. 
That's the exact same motive that Khan is going toward at the end of this movie. He's not... He's even beyond something like that, honestly, because it's beyond defeat. He wants to take down as many people as possible. And when you look at the mentality behind that, somebody that's willing to, for the greater damage, for what? For vanity? For not being able to accept loss, is willing to damage and absolutely destroy everyone. You take the lack of humanity behind the character Spock. This is where the intricacy and the beauty behind the core three characters come forward. Is it Spock that chooses for the greater good of everyone else to defeat, essentially, Khan? I mean, if anyone is the winner, if anyone defeats Khan, it is Spock. It, that There's no way that I could see it differently because it was him coming to terms with... The utmost important thing. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, basically, and... The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Where, like, and that's where the, the character of Khan and Kirk split is because Khan is willing to do anything to get his revenge while Kirk is kind of willing to do anything to, like, save lives. So what ends up happening to Khan is he goes on like a suicide fucking mission. Harry care or fucking bonsai. Well, is it so much Kirk's mission to save lives? And I don't disagree. I think that's... I would say it's a mission. I'm it, that's more of a personal choice on his end. Well, and especially in this movie, I think it's a very important thing that he is keen to saving lives, and I think that's shown through the fact that, depending on which cut of the movie... Well, really, what he wants to do is win. Yes, and if that I mean, that's where I'm getting to. Getting, like, if that involves winning is saving as many lives as possible, that's what he's going to do. But, like, and then what I'm saying is that's how, where the characters split, is because Khan is willing to go towards the, the, the end and fucking destroy everyone he knows and himself for this revenge, while Kirk, like, learns from his mistake of maybe this wasn't such a good idea and maybe people got hurt because of what I'm doing. And that's where the split happens between him and Khan is that, that there are like Kirk learns that there are repercussions and Khan is perfectly just okay with the repercussions of what he's done. It all comes down to an old Klingon proverb. One of the most infamous things of the Star Trek series is something that's uttered in this movie. Something that's echoed later on in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. Revenge is a dish best served cold. No matter how cold Khan felt he was, no matter how isolated and desolate he felt from humanity, the one thing that destroyed him was the overall emotion. That takes us back to the absolute perfection and the trinity, if you will call it, of Star Trek. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Spock acting as the Holy Ghost, McCoy the Father, the Son as Kirk. These three things work in such utter intricacy that when they play off of each other, that's what saves the day here. The reintroduction of all of our characters in Star Trek The Motion Picture show everyone at complete odds and differences. McCoy has been away for quite some time. He's adapted to a, I guess we could say, bohemian lifestyle. Kirk is lost. He chases adventure. He chases being a captain, like doing drugs. Spock, on the other hand, has had nothing. His life has lost any meaning aside from being a science officer to where he is willing to overexpose himself to logic. We learn with V'ger that the coldness, the incapability of just being logic is, is no way to even accessibly live, that you can't grow, you can't move forward from that. 
These people have accepted the challenge and what they know is their lives have no meaning. If they die, they've died for the greater good. That's one thing that no, no, nowhere in the Ark of Khan does he ever get the idea of that. He exposes his own people to death. He somewhat mourns his number two Joaquin or, or Wacom or whatever. But all of it is in this vain, ignorant attempt to pull one over on Kirk. He gets And so... I can say the same thing for Kirk through most of the film until you yes. get to that ending is that they're both in that same headspace of this vain allegiance to their own bravado and their own sense of self-worth. And it, and Kirk actually has a moment of realization because when Kirk, uh, when Spock does sacrifice himself for everyone, he sees that there are some decisions that you have to make that aren't all about winning. They aren't all about pulling one out. It's sometimes people are going to die for the decisions that you make. And sometimes it might be your best friend. And that's, again, another humbling moment for Kirk where he's just realizing kind of how uh, lost he's been his whole life. And pretty much the, the thing that like personifies this entire film is the last uh, the last bit of like scene in this film, which really always hits me. It always hits me. I always get fucking teary eyed when Kirk delivers the eulogy at Spock's funeral where it's just of all the souls I've ever encountered in this universe, his was the most, most human. human. And it's just his delivery of it. Kirk, like fucking Kirk Shatner shows uh, what a great actor he actually is that he gets a lot of shit, but Shatner actually is a pretty great actor depending on what he's doing, what he, like what the job is, but he always does the job. And in, in Star Trek two, he really puts one forth and like just delivers that emotion and that perfect stutter in his voice when he's uh, doing the eulogy for his best friend. and Well, let's let's humanize things a little bit here, though. Let's just consider these characters real. Look at all the things that Kirk has had to accept and had to deal with on the mission to becoming the, the captain again of the Enterprise, that he was the admiral, and he goes through this entire mission of just looking at the ship. It turns into a shit show. He becomes the captain. This guy ends up becoming like a space god, a, a new species that is able to roam and go to new universes, and he ends up taking the ship over a second time from his best friend, who at the end of this venture ends up dying while learning and spending time with his son for the very first time. It's beyond humbling. He's learned and had to literally feel and learned to accept spectrum. age and dying. That's another like strong thing that comes that's through a, this that's film. That's a big theme. I mean, the movie begins with Kirk's birthday and everyone's bringing him these intricate gifts. He gets some Romulan ale. He gets a pair of ancient glasses from Bones. All of these beautiful things that makes him reflect and, and look upon himself and his previous adventures and where we left off before Star Trek The Motion Picture was just a five-year voyage of these gentlemen that had never met each other. I mean, it's not military, but for coming up with something comparatively similar, it's like being stationed with people in the military. None of them knew each other, and they took these five years. They learned each other's souls. They learned how to work with each other. And then there's a massive difference. What is it, 15 years or so between the the original series and the first movie? And this is, I'm not sure if it's immediately after, but there is a time and, and space difference. It's not like we go from Star Trek Part 1 to Star Trek Part 2. Kirk is adamant about returning to the, the joy of the adventure. And we look at these characters and we look at what the, we stand for and what they stand for. And why I, I say we 
is I think these core three people are representations of all of our emotions. And as you even move into like your mid twenties, Kirk's adventure is over. And for the most part, so is yours. You have to move into work or family life or doing something to continuously keep getting your wife her pills when she forgot them. Or paying the rent or making sure that you have groceries or paying for your animals. You assume these responsibilities in life that become so monotonous. It's it's like a mission. You just have to keep doing it and you crave going back to the younger parts of your life and the adventure. And at the end of this movie, the the very last lines of dialogue, I believe, are Kirk saying, I feel young. I feel young. And him realizing the strenuous nature of our existence is all for emotion, but it has to have logic. But without emotion, logic means fucking nothing. And basically, and at the end of it, we learn consequences that our actions do have consequences and that not every situation is winnable. Sometimes you're going to face really like steep consequences. And that is like Kirk's big arc is him learning that, not every like thing he shits out is fucking perfect that he does make mistakes that he does have the capability of ruining someone else's life um and really like letting himself feel fragile but after kurt or after a uh, spot does that sacrifice though it it's some at some point kind of uplifts him to a point of just knowing that his friend was really that good of a being that something for him to aspire to besides being a captain, besides being the greatest adventure that you can be even more than that. And, but there are consequences to that. It's not so much about a rank. It's not a position. It's, it's about what you achieve. It's about what you do in this small glimpse of time that you have to do it for the betterment of other people. On the last episode, I think we were much more inclusatory toward fans like myself that are not familiar with the series. And on this one, we've really jumped into wrath of Khan and, We've already told you how the movie ends. We, we've we talked, Khan uh, dies, Spock dies. It's all a big shit show for everyone. We didn't talk so much about what the movie is about, and I, I, I referenced this earlier. When you jump from part one to part two, there are a lot of, of relevant references to the movie just being one giant western in space. And what you really have when you break this down here is Khan is the black hat cowboy. And Kirk is the white hat that's coming back into town, the old sheriff. You've got that. Well, he's the gunslinger who put down his guns, and now he's back into battle, and yeah, he's got I mean. like he's, he's completely unsure of himself. Um, but he does have that bravado, like he knows what he's doing. And then at the end, at the end of it, it's just like, holy fucking shit! How close I came to fucking everything up just because I was so, like, mistakenly confident in myself. Uh, and not even confidence as much as projecting confidence as in not really being confident, but like just projecting the idea of confidence out and how that can be like misconstrued and actually get people hurt. Well, that kind of goes back to my point. It, it's very similar to the good old tombstone story, but more specifically, I'm going to reference my darling Clementine from 1946 by John Ford. It's the story of Wyatt Earp meeting up with his brothers in an old desert town that's run by some dirty, awful gamblers. Now, in real life, it turns out the Earp brothers actually caused the situation that turned into the epitomous and famous gunfight at the OK Corral and what is immortalized forever in the epic picture by Panos Cosmatos' father, George P. Cosmatos' epic film Tombstone. 
I like it more in My Darling Clementine, and I think that's more of an apt reference to Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan because we have a much more old-timey depiction of these characters, and I reference it specifically because that's what it is. Captain Kirk is Wyatt. He's Wyatt Earp. He's returning to an office he previously had somewhat yearns for, but when we enter Kirk's atmosphere in Wrath of Khan, he just wants to return to being a simple man. He wants to explore the unknown, and he has a lot of responsibility on himself. But just like in My Darling Clementine, Wyatt Earp just wants to be a normal person. He joins forces with his brothers, who end up going to war with this Clampett gang, and the rest is history. It's Tombstone. We know that. Now let's look at Wrath of Khan. We've got Wyatt Earp, Captain Kirk, joining up with his brother, Virgil, Bones McCoy, and Doc Holliday, and I really am going to give that to Spock, and they have to pretty much face off this evil, this, this unlawfulness that they have given up beforehand. The whole point of the Enterprise and what they're doing is to explore. It's a science office more than anything else. They're not here for war. Kirk is a war chief. He's an old-time cowboy. He's a former sheriff that is going across the land distilling law and making sure people obey it for the peace and the betterment of society. In his mind. That's his concept of things. But it's brutish, and his nature in general has to be corrected, and that's the intensity of Khan, because in real life, the Earps were in the wrong. They started the situation. That could be said for Wrath of Khan, and I know this is an exasperating reference. I'm going on and on and on. I'm talking about dumb old cowboy shit and westerns. But there, there isn't a point to it. I mean, the, the fact that Star Trek itself is supposed to be a western that takes place in space, but putting that aside, the duality of these characters, everything that Khan is operating on is on the intents of revenge. And despite the fact that he is a fascist, a space fascist, and a very awful person historically, he's not so much in the wrong, because he was left on that planet by Starfleet and Federation, and they fucking left him there and ignored the needs for the needs of many other people. All of this comes back into place, and it's, it's not the fact that, well, he's a fascist, fuck him. It's the whole point of, of the treatment and the duality of human nature, yes, he did something wrong, but does that mean we have to treat our prisoners just as badly as they treated us, and so on and so forth, and I'm, I'm going on and on and on and on, but that's kind of the beauty and one of the things that becomes articulately interesting when you delve into Star Trek, and I've said this over and over and over again, but I am so outside of my environment here, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> I, I just can't stop. I'm so into the theories. There's so much. There is so much into the nature of how these characters were written and proposed to us and given to us that, man, it's just, this is why we're doing the show. It's just, God, it's, it's endless. Well, that's, so, that's what's interesting about at least this section of Star Trek. I mean, all Star Trek follows along these same parameters, but like what I find interesting about the first six movies is just how deep we get into character and how deep we get into ideas and philosophical concepts of exploration, possible imperialism, possible like things like this and like almost like moral puzzles. And uh, we get into kind of morality plays and how would you kind of respond to situations like this? What would be the proper answer for situations like this? And it's not just like dumb old, fucking space stories it's not uh the rebels against the, the space fascists this is um like very definitely thought out 
ideas that you can kind of swirl around your head and kind of contemplate yourself. Did Kirk make the right decision? And I personally think Kurt has made a lot of correct decisions. I personally think he's made a lot of wrong decisions over, over the years. But the important thing is he always learns from those decisions. He's not the chosen one. He's not got magical powers. He's just a man. And he's a man with flaws. And each one of these movies teaches him a little bit more about the flaws he has and how he can kind of improve on those. And it doesn't really like reset itself each film. Like maybe a little bit, but not to like a complete extent where Kirk just goes back to who he was. No, each film subsequent after the last one, these characters grow and these characters become more fulfilled than the things that they've learned through space exploration. And that's what's kind of amazing about Star Trek. It's not just the same shit played out again and again and again. It's all these different situations call for different reactions. Sometimes it maybe it's a battle and sometimes maybe it's just a coy trick you have to play and sometimes maybe it's just diplomacy and that's kind of how the real world operates and it's not just good versus evil and that's what's really interesting about wrath of khan because before hank knew any of the previous knowledge of the original series and what khan's inception was he's like partially rooting for khan the entire time not and just not understanding like what a bad guy khan really is but <clears throat> that's also the what the movie is uh, is trying to get you to respond to it's not just cut and dry he's fucking evil he does air his grievances and it does make you consider his grievances as does he have a point is there a point to what he is saying and has kirk wronged him and it's up for up to us to figure out if he has or he hasn't but if he did he did pay for it with his friend's life well i think the big difference is having previous knowledge because when we first encounter khan and star trek the original series there is a certain level of diplomacy, and he states repeatedly to Kirk that this is not personal. I'm commandeering your ship, and unfortunately, people's lives have been lost, but they're collateral damage, and you did something similar to me. Maybe not you, but the people you work for or represent you had something to do with this. Thus, I'm going to do the best that I can to achieve what I want to do. No offense. After the events of the original series and what has happened in the time between that, things aren't incredibly clear, but there are hints and notions as to why Khan is as non-amicable to work with the Federation and Kirk and his explicit anger that Kirk is an admiral now. The reason behind that is in the original series, there was a Starfleet member on board the ship that ends up siding with Khan and leaves with him. So when Khan leaves, he's got a member of Starfleet with him. He repeats several times that he lost his wife to one of those weird little eel things that they shove inside of Chekhov's ear. His wife is that member of Starfleet who left with him. He has been harboring nothing but anger toward Kirk the entire time he's been gone, and the specific reasons is because Kirk left him on this planet, but when the one nearby exploded, he had no thought. His bravado of solving the situation, no one looked back to see if their prisoners were okay, which brings up further questions and faults within the universe and why the Star Trek universe itself does have importance, that this entire movie almost focuses on prisoner rights. What happens if you break the Geneva Convention and these people are abused? Don't they have the right to do something back? And as you were bringing up, I was very, very sympathetic watching this movie, like... Dude, this guy's gotten screwed over. I, You don't know the backstory, so when you go into Wrath of Khan Cold, 
I really feel that he ends up becoming, this has been a big word for this show, but the antithesis of it, because you're putting everything on the emotion of this person who has been completely abused and you don't quite understand the Starfleet personnel, I guess you could say. And what really, we, we didn't talk about this a lot, but I think something that really helps the intricacy of this is the introduction of the new character, Lieutenant Savick. We begin the movie with her struggle and the attempt of learning the Kobayashi Maru, and that character is like a pawn that moves through our chessboard battling Khan as like the... One, also, she is a Vulcan, which figures in deeply into it because she ends up being a little bit more of a blank slate of a character where she's just wanting information, and it's not so much broken into um, kind of an emotional reflex to the situation at hand. I mean, she's... I sort of questioned the character, though, because I, did, I wanted to ask you this. Is, is she... I thought she was more like Spock, maybe like half Vulcan, half Romulan, because she seems very inquisitive and very emotional compared to her, compared to what you usually would. Well, she hasn't taken the collar. We don't have a lot with the character because unfortunately after this movie, when it moves to Star Trek three, Kirstie Alley asked for a golden cow to be made uh, as her payment. And Leonard Nimoy could not deal with such things so we, we this is her introduction i believe this is kirstie alley's very first like major motion picture role and i really love the character though because the duality that i've been expressing well, she does the, continue in part three she does the character i think takes a, just a, a completely different actress playing her it's a very well cast difference but i think the character's emotion and the role was drastically changed in that movie and it's unfortunate because what we have here and as i was discussing on the previous episode and we've gotten a little bit here and there into this we have this beautiful duality between our lead three characters mccoy spock and captain kirk now scotty is a little bit more important than this movie but it depends on what version you watch because one version of the movie features his nephew the other one he just seems to be very upset about somebody dying but it was intentionally supposed to be his nephew and trying to bring a more familial aspect to the movie i guess to pull at the heartstrings of the audience but when we have kirstie alley's character it's something that not only makes kirk realize spock isn't so individual and he isn't the only one and we actually have that in the first motion picture because he is insisting on a vulcan being on board and there's a horrible incident with the transporters and that vulcan ends up getting completely fried turned inside out <laughs> but that works because that's why we end up getting spock introduced into the movie he is he's i i, I don't know it's hard i can't I, I have words and obviously they're not coming out of my head but i think having this character is allowing kirk to know that individuality is much more important than he has ever put stock into it before that there are other people that could do this job but what makes it so significant is the emotion and the it's not the term i want to use but brotherhood the familial aspect that has become between him and the core three well, he's one of the three. So the core two characters, not including him. Savick was such an interesting character to introduce because it opposed what we have a previously established. It's not because she's a woman, but it's a different aspect of Star Trek. And then the character is just sort of thrown away. Well, she's not even addressed as one because she's addressed as Mr. Savick the entire time. Which I, I feel was sort of a throwback to the pilot where the original captain was very unhappy having a woman on board. And it's Kirk's uneasiness to work with something undifferent, but still referring to it as it would be Spock. Well, and also there's different, there are different uh, ideas of why Savick's referred to as a Mr. Some say it was 
a male character before it was rewritten and then just never rewrote uh, replaced Minister with Miss. And some people believe it's because that everyone on the starship is dressed as Mr. with a certain rank. Yeah, I could be wrong, but I, I do believe in the military, everyone's just referred to as either sir or mister. There's not a differential to ranks. It's just a coverall. Yeah, completely irrelevant little detail, but it's there. Well, here is uh, moving in on irrelevance. Nicholas Meyer had an obsession throughout the filming of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. If you pay a lot of detail and attention, there's a lot of nautical notions. There's a nautical bell that plays whenever somebody's addressed or when something's happening on the brig, and all of these things are throwbacks to Herman Melville. And a lot of what Khan repeats and a lot of things that come from the original series is from Moby Dick, and Nicholas Meyer really focused on that. And for the first time, it's treated more like a naval fleet. The uniforms change in this movie. On the last episode, we were talking about more of the... uh, Age of Aquarius, kind of hippie-looking. disco outfits. Yeah, very weird, beige, long-legged leotards. And now we've moved into a much more sophisticated naval look. And I think that's really coming down to Nicholas Meyer and something that brings a lot of strategy... Brings a lot of strategy... Brings a lot of strategy to this movie is taking a more militaristic approach, despite the fact the society we're supposed to be living in and the Federation not being... a, a an armed military presence, but it really helps the series here and using the mobility of Herman Melville and Moby Dick allows us to have this contrast because as I was discussing beforehand, you've got this anger that's been building inside of Khan. He's been wasting away on this desert planet for years and years and years and years. It once was a paradise and now it's absolutely nothing. So these contrasts really make a difference because not only is the Enterprise the white whale, but Kirk is too. It's the infinite one beautiful thing that will be completion to this man's life. Khan is willing to destroy not only his species, but his entire belief system to get his white whale. And the fact the Enterprise is one giant big white craft plays things so eloquently beautiful. So it's Moby Dick the cowboy version. It's like if <laughs> the OK Corral happened at Deep Sea, but still it takes me back to my darling Clementine that all of these, or Tombstone, or Gunfight at the OK Corral 1957, any representation of that film, it's just the point. It's the retired good coming back with the obsessive evil, and that's why Khan is such a dangerous and manipulative villain. V'ger is the most interesting thing I think we're going to end up discussing when it comes to this series, but Khan is the most dangerous. Khan isn't even a sociopath. He is, I mean, possibly, I guess you could define him as something like that, but I think he's more infinite. I think he is someone that is so definitively controlled by his own emotions that that makes him the most beautiful, dangerous thing. He's willing to kill millions to get rid of one person. Then you have Spock and the whole lesson of this movie and why the importance of Wrath of Khan is is there. The few, the many, the one, the proud, the Marines. This what? episode of Death by DVD was sponsored by the United States Marine Corps. Well, I, I think this all, like, it progresses throughout the series. And I think one thing that is mentioned in Part 5, and Part 5 does get a bad rap. We will get into that one. But there's a line in that movie, I think, that applies to this film and all the films in the six-episode um, kind of uh, series is that Kirk remarks that he needs his pain because pain is make makes us who we are. And I think that applies to this film as well, that our emotions 
the things that we go through, the, the different things that we have to uh, overcome in our life make us who we are. And sometimes those things are pain and the pain of losing Spock, the pain of um, having to annihilate Khan because he does get off on it until he kind of realizes that, wait a minute, I have to make a sacrifice to do this. And that's the sacrifice I had to make. And he learns from it. And that's what I think is so amazing about these six movies is they each character just keeps learning and learning and learning and building upon who they are as characters. You don't get that a lot with sequels. What you get going into the Fast and the Furious series, does anybody fucking learn anything? They just like go from adventure to adventure to adventure and they're the same person they were before. Untrue. They don't. Hmm? Not true. In part how three, so? they learn how to Tokyo drift. Ah, uh, well. Technology aside, as characters, do they really grow? And not really because they end up just being the same character because that's what you're paying to see, the same character over and over again. And you're doing ostensibly the same thing with Star Trek, but these characters grow and morph as each movie progresses. Well, the difference is there was a previous established notion of who these characters were and the the audience. And And by six, it's no longer who they were in the original series. Those The characters have drastically changed and aged and are wearing their age and are somewhat proud of their age. And I think that's the thing that is the introduction in part one, is especially the core audience and the people that wanted a future Star Trek, the people that were excited for it, the people that lived with these characters when they were children, that there were so many people that became doctors and engineers and moved forward from what they saw in the original series, being able to add growth and changing these characters, making them grow, allowed the people that watched this to grow. And I'm not trying to pin one thing against the other, but when you look at something like Star Wars, which is the other big fucking star series, yes, you could argue all day long that there's all sorts of growth between these characters, but really there isn't, because the first series of movies is somebody that's really sad because he doesn't have a family and then he achieves something, and then the prequel series of movies is somebody that's really sad because he doesn't have something and then he achieves something, but this time it's evil. And then there's a whole bunch of fucking movies about stuff that happened in between, but what do we learn at the end of the day? I guess that there could be a whole rant and raving about what happens in between, but it doesn't have to happen when you watch Star Trek. You can watch the fucking first movie. And if you don't pick up on the lesson, that's alarming. I feel it's so in your face that it doesn't need to be hidden. And But that's the point of the show, that all of this stuff from the mind of Gene Roddenberry and the equality and the idea of this expansive universe of everything living within peace and everyone loving each other is this guy's. Let's just show it to people in space and maybe they'll buy into loving each other. And it's really strange how you can believe it in one aspect while you watch the movies, but you can't practice it in life. And Wrath of Khan might be the biggest lesson to to learn in the entire series is it's not always your emotion that's logic, but your logic isn't always emotion. But when it comes down to the end of the day, you have to think of others. We regularly discuss politics on this show, and we have a very left-wing approach to discussing politics, and I, Alexander Nash, might not be as extremist as some would say I could be. The point is what we believe in isn't for us. We don't believe in the things so we can get free health care, or we can go to college, or we can get something out of the government. What I, Alexander Nash, and I want is his children, maybe mine, and the future of others, to have all the things we didn't, healthcare, going to college without debt, being able to exist in a perfect universe like we're exposed to in Star Trek. The point of fighting 
And what I think the lesson of Wrath of Khan is, is fighting for the better of everything else, even though you might be afraid. You might not understand what's going on, but there are other people that, that will so much benefit. You're also going to lose. And it doesn't mean you lose in totality. It doesn't mean, well, you lost, so the entire battle is over. It's not like this. You're going to lose occasionally. You're not always going to win, and you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with losing some ground because you're going to make it up. You can't get discouraged. You can't get blackpilled and just give up because you gained something and you lost something. If you've gained something and then you've lost something, it's time to pick yourself back up and feel young again and take the Enterprise and explore new worlds, even when you've lost. That's kind of the whole fucking theme. But unfortunately, loss might not just be a little bit of ground. It could be something detrimental, like your best friend. It could be your best friend. And Spock isn't just a best friend. I mean, it could be the equation of a lover. It could be anything that is incredibly important in your life at that time period. But the logic that is exposed to us through Spock's disposition, because what we know of this character is somebody who is doing everything to get rid of their humanity. Spock does not want that. He wants to be incredibly logical. He wants to be 100% logical, and Spock dies for the sake of emotion and the emotion of... I mean, it's the betterment of everyone else, but it's saving their souls. For one, what we know of McCoy is his utter disliking and his fear almost, his xenophobia of somebody like Spock. These two bond in one way that they could never do before, which we'll discuss on the next episode of Death by DVD, but between that, they share moments of humanity, something that Spock, I don't think, ever felt he was capable of doing so. And you don't have to be a Vulcan to feel that way, and you don't have to be an old-timey doctor to be afraid of the unknown. All of us are guilty of it. The three core characters of the show, I think, inhabit every single one of us. The adventurous nature and the want and will to explore and get out of the boring hometown we're from. That's Captain Kirk. We're all afraid of the unknown and we're stuck in our own ways. That's McCoy. And there's always some form of logic, maybe from our mom or somebody else, that we keep instilled inside of us. That's our Spock. You look at what happens in this series, it's everything that happens every day in your life. You might not be fighting Khan or going after some weird omnipotent computer like V'ger. But you could be. I mean, that's your own thoughts. V'ger could be nothing more than your anger fighting at you every day. But, you know, I'm, I'm making some weird, big, fucking theoretical, philosophical statement here. But it really comes down to me. I, it's, it's the traversing of the souls of these characters. And without any knowledge, without having an established love of the three core characters of Star Trek, this is where I fell in love, especially with McCoy. Uh, and it's the end of the movie for me, and we what we're going to move into, I think, explains the things explains things a lot more with human emotion and the non-adventurous side of Star Trek, while still being very, very adventurous. And no matter what, you will always be my friend. Time to die, like no, tears. not Blade Runner, not uh, Star Trek Two. God damn it! Just took a monumental live from Spock on his fucking deathbed, well, his death glass case full of radiation, and it's really emotional, and fucking Shatner's crying, I'm crying, Spock's just sitting there, and he's fading away, and you make a Blade Runner reference? How dare you, sir? How dare you? Well, why don't we take off and 
nuke the site from orbit. Is that better? Are, are you happy? I don't have any other references. I just no. went on for like 15 Let's minutes. Let's shoot our giant fucking dildo to the planet, Spock's dildo coffin, and we'll get the fuck out of here. I just ranted for 15 minutes about the prophecy and the beautiful nature of the characters, and you're mad about a Blade Runner quote. I'm not anything more than that Blade Runner quote. Like, the last 19 episodes of Death by DVD, I somehow fucking bring up Roy Batty's fucking Tears and Rain quote. I don't know any other soliloquies. Here's a lesson for the audience. Teach me fucking Hamlet. I don't know. Just watch the end of Star Trek 2. It's right there. There's a soliloquy. It's perfect. It's Spock's soliloquy. And then Kirk does a beautiful speech, and then you cry, and everybody cries. And then we have to hear it three times more in the next movie. Yes, you do, because it's fucking powerful. Talking about Hamlet, just wait, because we'll have Christopher Plummer doing nothing but quoting Hamlet. Or is it Macbeth? Oh, well, it doesn't matter. So we began this voyage with the simple quest of discussing the original six Star Trek movies. And as you can see, we've already encountered difficulty. Or have we? I mean, really, there is so much that we talk about on this show. We did a huge goddamn exposition about rituals, which was a detailed look into the difference of these characters. And it's weird looking back on an episode like that and getting into Star Trek where all I want to do is dive into these characters and the exploration of who they are and the mythos behind them. I want to look into what they all stand for. And when you move into even the very first movie, there's so much more than that. And there's so much more at stake. And I think Wrath of Khan really wraps everything perfectly into what you need to understand when it comes to exposing yourself to Star Trek, that the struggle, I guess you could say, is all of these people together looking for the greater good of not just the human race, but the entire galaxy so much more. We're looking at a, a world and a universe that is exposed to so much more than we are, even technologically. There are so many races holding hands, so many species that work as one and love each other. All of this, all of these adventures, what we see through Kirk as our avatar is what we're introduced to at the narration space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the USS Enterprise. These people attempting to achieve a greater good. Wrath of Khan comes to the ultimate idea of the greater good because I don't think anybody loves a character more than Spock. He is the ultimate of Star Trek characters, and everybody can at least at some point identify with his struggles. When we lose him, we lose not just the logic, but the backbone of the series. So we really move into the unknown. Star Trek Three, which you'll hear about on the next episode, is a distant and futile glimpse of everything that we've already established, and it's just a, a big reference to life, death, rebirth, and everything in between. Wrath of Khan ends with the beauty that Star Trek The Motion Picture ends. We see a birth. That's how Star Trek ends. A whole new entity, a whole beautiful thing out into the galaxy. What's the difference with part two? And you know what? Uh, hold on. I, I gotta get another glass of Romulan ale. Oh, no. Well... It looks like I'm all out of Romulan ale. I don't know about I, Alexander Nash, but the ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. The 
Did you think we forgot? No. We just saved the best for last. It's time for a warp speed round of DeForest Kelly. Or William Shatner. A curse affects the Preston family caused by their betrayal of the satanic priest Jonathan Corbis, played by Ernest Borgnine, who masturbates a lot. I masturbate a lot. Corbis has harassed the Preston family for generations to obtain a satanic book of great power. He captures patriarch Steve Preston, who is allowed to escape to warn his wife Emma and younger son Mark about Corbus's wrath. He tells them to give the book to Corbus, but during a rainstorm melts away into a big puddle of goo, setting forth a battle of good versus evil. Who plays the younger son Mark? Is it... DeForest Kelly. Or is it William Shatner? Well, whack me up and hail Satan. It's a regular old Shatter Tech. It's William Shatner. Thanks for playing another ooey gooey round of Keith David. Oh, oh. William Shatner. Or did Forrest Kelly. Until next time, goodbye, good luck, and have a pleasant tomorrow. DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. <laughs>